Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Live It Well podcast. We are your hosts, Chris and Jenny Gravy. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We are so glad that you're here with us. Each week, we invite authors, mentors, friends of ours who have an inspiring message, who are living their life well. And so our goal is to learn and grow, and we want to invite you to do the exact same thing with us. So hope you're ready. Let's dive right in. On today's episode, we are chatting with author, speaker, and COO of Messenger International, Addison Bevere, about what it means to discover and live out of your true identity in Christ. You know, this was such an amazing conversation. I didn't know really what to expect walking in, but Addison shares with us his journey of writing this brand new book called Saints, Becoming More Than Christians. And if you're like Jenny and I, and maybe just the mention of the word saints kind of makes you kind of cringe and crawl in your skin (laughs) a little bit. But you know what? Addison had a really refreshing take on this and unpacks the truth about what it means to have our identity in Christ as saints. We have this new life. We have this new gift. We have this new identity. But so much of this journey in Christ is unlearning assumptions that we had about ourselves about our world, about what it is to be holy, about what it is to be righteous, of what it is to be loved. It's really a journey into seeing myself the way God sees me, like that wrecked me. He really does redeem this word for us. Um, And it was incredibly encouraging and refreshing. And it reminded me of the conversation we had back in episode 66 in the fall with our friends, Eric and Kristen Hill, when they shared about the life of Peter. I loved how they pointed out that Jesus calls him Peter the Rock way before he starts acting like Peter the Rock. While he's still identifying himself as Simon the Fisherman, Jesus calls him Peter the Rock. And he's inviting him to live into that identity. And that's what Addison is pointing out to us today, that we are invited to live into this identity as saints in Christ. And that by calling us saints, he's speaking not to who we are now, but to the people that we can become after a lifetime in the presence of Jesus. So we hope that this episode will encourage you today, that it will give you a new way to view yourself closer to the way that God sees you. It's refreshing. I think it's going to be surprising for you. You're going to love it, guys. Here's Addison. All right, Addison, welcome to the show. We're glad you're here, man. It's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, you know, you you uh, you know, your last name is kind of connected to a couple <laughs> other folks that have been in the the speaking and in, yeah. really influencing in the Christian world for a long, long time. I would love to hear what it was like growing up as a kid of the Breviers. Yeah. Well, my parents, I mean, I, I have the utmost respect for them and love for them. And they did a phenomenal job in raising us and not forcing us to be them. They were very much like, we want you to do whatever God has placed in you, what God has placed on you. And so even though we felt a lot of pressure from without, the within space was was very um, was very protected by my parents. And they're the kind of people, they they live what they preach. And that's that's really easy to love. Like when you're around someone who's the same person, regardless of whether they're standing in front of 30,000 people or they're in, in a car with a cab driver, you know, that's someone who I respect. Like I'm not impressed with ministry. I'm not impressed with platform. I'm not impressed with spectacle because I've seen it. I've been there. I've, behind, I've been behind the scenes. I've been in, in, in the front. Like I've, I've been everywhere along that spectrum. What amazes me is when people are committed to actually walking out what it means to follow Jesus and wrestling with that tension in their world. And that's something that my parents did so well. 
I love it. All right, Addison, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do. You have kids, family, that whole thing. Yeah. Uh, so I'm married. Been married for almost 12 years. Nice. We have four kids, two wow. boys, two girls. Yeah. I actually led my wife to Jesus. Wow. I did full-on missionary dating. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Oh, yes. <laughs> so we, we, had a, we had a mutual friend. I hadn't dated anyone for like two, three years. We had a mutual friend who was convinced like if we went and hung out, that I could lead her to Jesus. <laughs> and she was like on drugs, like party scene, drinking hard, like the whole nine yards. And uh, we went out and three days later, she gave her life to Jesus. And two days after that, she told me that she loved me. And this was like a full on player, like multiple boyfriends, like not a good girl. Didn't even know what John 316 said, right? <laughs> like, so for me, this was wonderful. I loved it. I mean, because right. I loved it because I knew she didn't want to date me just because of who my parents are and um, ended up leading her to the Lord. And she went to Bible school. She was going to Texas State, changed, went to Bible school. I told her she didn't need to do that. But she just had this idea, like, if I'm going to marry a preacher's son, like, I need to go to Bible school. So she went to Bible school. We weren't allowed to talk for 275 days. It was a super intense, like, rigid program. Wow. Where they're like, we're cutting you off from any soul ties. You know, <laughs> wow. Kind of legalistic things but we did it we honored it i wrote her every day for 275 days gave her over 400 pages worth of letters the day she graduated and asked mm. her to marry me wow. so uh, that's yeah so, so great. that's our story yeah and uh it's been amazing and then as i mentioned we have four kids and then for uh, professional work i'm the coo of messenger international and what we do we believe that there's one god one message, but many messengers. So we want people to see themselves as messengers whose lives tell the story of the gospel. So uh, we help people see themselves differently through podcasts, through resources, um, through traveling and speaking, through all different types of things. We invest heavily in the global church. We've translated our discipleship resources into over 100 languages, and we've been able to get them into every single country and territory except for 14 of them. So we've, we've given away over 30 million um, resources, books, teaching curriculum over the last several years. We have a lot of fun doing that. We believe in the global church. We believe in what God's doing through the world. And um, we love people seeing themselves as individual expressions, along with the corporate expression of what God's doing in the earth. I love that. Well, we're huge fans of you guys and, and all that God's using you to do across the globe. And we're excited to have you on today and yeah. to jump into this book that you have out called Saints. That's quite a lofty word. <laughs> I have to say, when we were think when we, we were looking at this book um, to have you on, I have always pushed back at that word. So I was a little like, okay, what is this about? And I and I was so refreshed by your take on it and all that God was showing you through it. So I want to dive right into it. Tell us how you came across this and what led you to kind of dive into this word saints. Yeah. And as I've done these interviews, the subtitle is becoming more than Christians. Mm -hmm. And I have Christians in quotations. People always ask me like, are you campaigning against the term Christian? Like, is that, (laughs) is that a bad term? I'm like, no, it's not. It's not a bad identifier. But several years ago I was reading this book it was a book written um, early 1900s, and the author wasn't writing about saints, but there was this paragraph where he made mention of a saint. And he described a saint as someone who practices and participates in the mystery of the final day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, I've never heard right. that. I've never seen that. Yeah. And I could sense God was telling me, like, do a deep dive. 
check out what that means to practice and participate in the mystery of the final day. So there's that component. And there's also this other component. And this has been a recurring story in my life. I remember one uh, particular instance, I was on a plane with this lady and I'm very introverted, right? So when I get on a plane, I'm in my own world. I get my book out. I put my headphones in. Like, I don't want to talk. Like, my mama raised me right. So I'm going to acknowledge the existence of the person sitting <laughs> three inches away from me. But other than that, like, that's probably right. all the conversation we're going to have. But this uh, particular day, the lady sitting next to me, she wasn't having it. Like, she wanted to talk. And so an hour and a half later, I haven't had any me time. We've been talking and I've heard her entire life story. And she shared all these different things, very intimate things with me. And during this time, she had shared how much she'd been hurt by Christianity, how much she'd been hurt by religion, by the church. Mm. And I'm sitting here listening, but I'm, I'm speaking into her situation using biblical wisdom, right? And then finally, she turns to me and she goes, so what religious practice do you follow? And I, I remember squirming in my seat because I didn't want to tell her that I was a Christian, and it's not that I'm ashamed of Jesus. Like I want to follow Jesus. I want to spend the rest of my life figuring out what it means to follow Jesus in this modern world. I believe that Jesus is the one person who got this whole humanity thing right, so we better follow him. But I didn't want her to associate me with all of those stigmas and stereotypes and labels that people have come to know as like cultural Christians. And so that's a tension that you know I've leaned into for many years. And so when I saw that word saint, I was like, I got to dive in. Like, I've got to know more about what it means to practice and participate in the mystery of the final day. I think everybody wants to know what you said to her. <laughs> I know I do. You're like, it's not important. It's fine. <laughs> no, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you what I said. I told her I was a follower of Jesus. Yeah. That's what I told her. But I squirmed for a little bit. I was Same. like, I was racking my brain. Like, how Same. do I answer that? And, and I'll be honest with you, walls went up. Yeah, like, sure. She was very open up to that point. And when I said that, walls went up. And that was hard. And I and I've that's not the only time I've experienced something like that. I'm probably you y'all have probably been oh, there. You've experienced 100%. that before. Many people listening to this have probably been there and experienced something like that. And as I was doing this deep dive into the word saint, you know, Jenny, like you, I wasn't real fond of the word saint before this. I, right. I'm a one on the Enneagram. Same. So yep. maybe it's just that. Like, <laughs> maybe. Like, like, I don't know. My oneness <laughs> and that word just it's elusive. It, they don't work. Yeah. Like, they, just, yeah, <laughs> exactly. they just don't work. And but when I dove into the word saint, I discovered some things that just that blew my mind. Number one, the word saint is used over 60 times in the New Testament to describe followers of Jesus. Over 60 times. The word Christian is used only three times. Mm. So I mean, just think about that. Yeah. So when when the early church, when they were turning the world upside down, when they were subverting cultural and ethnic norms, when they were sharing a gospel message that was breaking down all of the stereotypes and knowns of their world, they were known as saints. And if you look at the one who primarily used the word saint, it was Paul. And who was Paul called to? He was called to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. He was called to the marginalized. He was called to the quote unquote unholy people, to the people who weren't chosen, to the people who didn't belong. And he was the one who was writing these letters and saying to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Rome, to the saints in Ephesus. So he was making a proclamation of identity. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, this is who you are right now. It's not, hey, one day this is who you will be. Or one day if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll become a saint. He's saying, no, this is who you are right now. And because of the fact that this is who you are, this is what your life should look like. This is what your life will look like because you are called, you are chosen by God to reveal his ways in Corinth 
in Ephesus and Philippi. And what he did is he would share these beautiful concepts of salvation and reconciliation and covenant. And then he would move into very practical, personal, everyday application. And I, and I love that. Yeah, you're right. And, and I, I love that too. I, I was looking up this morning just a couple of times where you do see saints um, in the Bible. And there was a few that I saw that, that connected it with his saints. You are his saints. Love the Lord because you are his saints. Um, so it, it is a beautiful term, and I'm glad that you're redeeming it for all of us that kind of recoil at it. Um, but talk about a little bit more, what does it mean to live from this place of our identity being a saint and his saint? And what does that look like in our life to act and to live out of that place? Yeah. Yeah. So when, when we think of saints, for the most part, what do we think? We think of dead people. Mm-hmm. We think uh, a prefix that we put in front of people's names that they lived a really quote unquote holy life. Uh, we think of pretty much anyone but us, right? right? Like <laughs> identity that doesn't really belong or apply to yes. us. But the thing about a saint is to become a saint is to become profoundly human. To become a saint is to dive into the messiness of humanity. To become a saint is to capture a vision of what God sees when He sees us. It's it's someone who merges the worlds of what is and what will be reconciling everything to God. Like we are, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, we are his ambassadors of reconciliation. Like that's what we're called to be. And we hear that concept and it's very abstract and it's very elusive. And that's why institutional religion has used it to feed elitism. That's so ugly in religion. You know what I'm saying? Like that, like, oh, you'll never really belong. This is just for a select few. But when Paul would write to the saints, he wasn't saying, hey, to the few of you who are saints in Corinth. He's declaring that over every single person in Corinth and every single person today reading those letters, every single one of us. So we're invited to be a saint. And so what a saint does and what a saint purposes to do is to see the beauty and the purpose in everyday life. So to be a saint is to be present, to be in the moment, to see, okay, the kingdom of God, this idea that was Jesus's favorite thing to talk about. He talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else. Like, what does it actually mean for me to practice and participate in the mystery of the kingdom of God today in my vocation, in my family, in my marriage? So one of the things that saints do, and this is, this is so beautiful, is they deconstruct the barriers between the secular and the sacred. Because they realize that what we do on Monday is just as holy as what we do on Sunday. They realize the vision as described by Isaiah and Isaiah 11, Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2, that the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. Like that's the vision. That's where this is going. That's where God is moving this earth to. And he's inviting all of us to participate in that story of redemption, reconciliation, restoration, and very personal and practical ways in our everyday lives. So the enemy of our soul, what he does is he tries to take impact and he tries to turn it into this abstract idea that's always out of reach. He's terrified of us seeing the meaning of the moment. So what he does is he says, hey, one day when you do X, Y, or Z, your life will be significant. Your life will be holy. Your life will be worthwhile. And he always places meaning in the future or he throws it in our past. And we don't have the past and we don't have the future. What we have is the present. So if he can keep us from seeing the the meaning of the moment today, parenting, marriage, our work, whatever it is, if he can keep us from seeing that, he can undermine the expression of God's good work through our lives. 
It's good. Really good. Yeah. I, I, one of the things you touched on briefly, and we even talked about it before, and it, it's um, there's a real deep passion that also drove you to write this book. What you've seen in our culture and a certain demographic of specifically millennials and down. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing and, and what you're hopeful for this book is going to do for this generation? Yeah. There's, there's two chapters in this book, um, two chapters specifically. I tackle this idea. One is entitled To Fear or Not to Fear, and the other one is entitled Into Fear. And I, I, use, I use the quote from A.W. Tozer where he says, a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. And I actually think he's understating the truth. I think a low view of God is the cause of every lesser evil in our world. And I think generally speaking, I want to be careful as I say this, because you know, the reality is the church has always been broken. So I don't, I don't want to bash on the church. I mean, since day one, the church has been broken. And so I don't want to bash on the church. But what I've noticed is there's this desire for control. There's this desire for everything to be systematized. And we live in a, in a world that's a big world, that has big problems, that has big challenges. And it's not that the gospel isn't big enough for our world, but I think the pat answers that we're giving to some of these big questions that our world is throwing to us, the gospel version, the gospel that we're sharing, the gospel that we're modeling, isn't big enough for those questions. And so I've seen a lot of people um, say things like, I don't feel like I can be a Christian and remain a good person. They don't see how their faith journey can reconcile with their quote unquote real life. And ever, ever since the Enlightenment, back in the mid-1700s, it seems like we as the sacred people, we have forfeited the spaces of science, of art, industry. We've said, hey, these, these are now secular. And so what's happened is there's this duplicity that people are feeling. They're like, okay, so I'm one person in my quote-unquote sacred space. But when I go into the real world, there really isn't much of a connection. Like this isn't really empowering or fueling what I have to do Monday through Saturday or who I have to be. And so I think in our attempts to be systematic and our attempts to have control and comfort, we reduce the gospel to this idea, honestly, that feeds the idolatry that is so typical in us where we know that God created us in his image, but then now we want to return the favor because we're looking for that comfort and control. And I think there's, there's a large group of people that are rebelling against that notion and they're looking for spirituality outside the walls of the church because what's being offered to them is too small. They feel like it's too small. Yeah, I I agree. You know, we're in Nashville. We're in this city that's full of so many young, creative, wonderful people. And I think what's so fascinating to me, we were talking about this earlier before we jumped on, is that the people in our lives that we know and love that are having this issue, that are we're having these conversations with, that they're just wrestling with what it means to identify as a Christian, not necessarily to love Jesus and follow Jesus. These are like strong believers. These are people who yeah. have given their heart and their life to love and follow God, but they're having a really hard time going to church on Sunday. They're having a really hard time calling themselves a Christian. Um, so yeah. offer some hope here. I'm just, I, I would love for you to speak to that person listening who maybe is in that place or is walking with somebody that they know and love in that place. What do we do? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think we need a fresh look at scripture. Like I'm not, I'm not proposing anything that's new. What I'm proposing is a revolution. I'm proposing that we go back to the beginning. And when we look, when we look at scripture, we find a gospel message that is so 
supposed to break down all of the barriers that have made us very comfortable in our Christian comfort zones. Like if you look at the book of Acts, for instance, Jesus, after his resurrection, what does he do? He preaches on the kingdom. That's the one thing that he does is he preaches on the kingdom. And then the the disciples turn around, they're like, hey, so when are you going to establish the, the kingdom to Israel? In other words, like, when are you going to make this about our comfort zones, our ethnicity, what we expected? And he's like, no, you will not just be my witnesses to Israel. You'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, like, we have got to reframe the gospel's message scope. And when people see that, when people be like, wait, the gospel actually reaches into every area of my life, they'll ask critical questions that we don't ask when we're just living in our little comfort zone, living in our little quote unquote Christian world on the side. And and the gospel was never supposed to just be contained within a religious experience. It's always supposed to invade every aspect, every facet of our lives. And I think as people are empowered to see themselves as ministers of the gospel, like it says in Ephesians 4, what is the purpose of the fivefold ministry? The church is equipped the what? The saints for the work of the ministry. So when we actually dignify people who are scientists, who are artists, who are CFOs, who are stay-at-home moms, and show them how the kingdom of God is revealed through their lives, through practical demonstrations of faith, hope, and love, they're going to be like, man, I want to learn more about this. Like, I want to be a part of this mission because it's so much bigger than me. And I think one of the issues, at least for me, that I have found is the way we have individualized the gospel message. We've made the emphasis of like my piety, my eternal security, my salvation. But if you even look at the Lord's Prayer, it's our Father who is in heaven. And so this this gospel message, it requires us to see our world in a way that's bigger than our individual lives. And if, if you look at Jesus's invitation, when he was calling people to follow him, like in Luke 9, where he says, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. He's like, this is what you have to do. And what he's doing is he's offering a change of perspective because in Christ, death isn't a thief of the future. It's a gift of the present. So I don't, I don't know if you've ever experienced that before with, when you're with someone who's on their deathbed, like there's a lucidity, there's a clarity. They, they're aware of opportunities missed. They're aware of what's most important. They're aware of relationships that they should have reconciled. Like everything becomes clear. And so this idea of dying to self, of following him, of being a disciple, it's actually an invitation to see in this present moment what is most meaningful, what is most valuable, what is most crucial. And as long as we have this dualistic thinking of sacred and secular, people will continue to leave the church. They will, because we were called to have this integrated existence because of the mandate, the, the good life that God created us to know to enjoy. It would, I love what it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, that eternity was written on our hearts. Like There's an expansiveness inside of us that must be expressed during this time. A huge component of that is a purpose and a mission that reaches beyond the conventional church. That's good. Yeah, so good. Well, I know you said that you felt called to do a deep dive into this idea of saints and what we're like. Yeah. I know you've in the book, you cover the idea of where grace plays. You talk about God and his love language and what that looks like. And so what was something that really kind of stood out and surprised you in your deep dive of the word saints and what that means for us today? Yeah, oh, man, there were so many. I'm, it's going to be hard to pick one. I'm going to go with 
gosh. I'm going to go with what, so the literal definition of a saint is a holy one. Like that's literally, that's what it means. Hagios, it means holy one. And when we think of holiness, what do we think of? Like what, what comes to mind when I say the word holiness? Um, righteousness, perfection, um, unattainable. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. Elusive. Right? Okay. Yeah. Elusive. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, so I want to go to Isaiah 6. So Isaiah 6, we find this encounter with God. Isaiah, who's a prophet, finds himself in the throne room of God and he sees God and he's like, what in the world is going on? I mean, that's essentially what, what he says. He, what he, what he literally says is, I am a man of unclean lips or I must be silent is what he says. He's like, I can't put words to what I'm seeing. And what are, what are the seraphim saying? They're saying, holy, holy, holy. Now we think of that as a melody, but they're actually responding to the fact that they are seeing this God who is entirely other, the otherness of God. There's this, there's this superlative quality of God, his holiness that makes him unlike anything we've ever seen and anything that we've ever known. And here's Isaiah, who's a prophet. Now, what's the job of a prophet? Prophet's job is to put words on paper, to share on behalf of God. He's like, how in the world am I as a prophet going to give words, give speech to what I'm seeing? And then God takes a coal and puts it on his, on his lips and then the man who said, woe is me, I must be silent, is now saying, here, I'll be your messenger, send me. And so the thing about holiness is not like Isaiah was standing there in God's presence watching him not sin. Like when we think of holiness, like we think of keeping all the rules, not sinning. And sure, it, that is a part of it. What it is, though, it's an otherness. Honestly, it's like a higher form of being, and it's something that we only receive from God. That's why in Second Peter 1, it says that we have, we have become partakers of his divine nature. It says in 1 John 3 that his seed is in us. Like we have this new nature. Um, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 talks about this idea of transformation as we see him as he is. This is a journey into holiness. And, and the journey into holiness is really the journey of wholeness. So holiness is not a destination. It's a journey. It's not a destination. People look at it. They look at it as this destination. Like when I do X, Y, and Z, I'll be holy. But no, the journey of holiness is actually the journey of discovering what it is to be his, what it is to be made in his image, what it is to receive his nature. It's seeing the world differently. It's seeing ourselves differently. A couple of years ago, I had this cataract surgery. You're like, man, you're way too young to have a cataract. <laughs> uh, it was a trauma-induced cataract. And basically, my whole right eye was covered. Like I, I was like looking through a black fog through my whole right eye. And it happened when I, when I was in the womb and they had to wait till I was in my thirties to operate. And so my whole eye I saw through, through this fog, right? So with the cataract surgery, what they have to do is they have to cut out your lens. Y'all are too young to know this, but they cut out your lens and they put in an artificial lens. Like that's what they do with the operation. So you have a fake lens. Wow. And so I went in, I had the surgery done. They cut out my lens, put a fake one in, and I still couldn't see clearly afterwards. Then they noticed there were some complications. So they go in and do another surgery come out of that, I still can't see clearly. Then they did two more procedures after that. So four procedures total, I still can't see clearly. And then finally, I'm sitting down with the doctor. I'm like, doctor, what in the world is going on? Why is this happening? Why can't I see clearly? And he looked at me and he said, Addison, I can't make your eye any clearer. He's like, your eyes as clear as it can possibly be. Your brain is still convinced that you're seeing through a cataract. Wow. And there's so many of us, and this is why Jesus would say again and again, eyes to see, eyes to see, eyes to see. This is why the renewing of the mind, like in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 2, the idea of having the mind of Christ is so important. 
we have this new life, we have this new gift, we have this new identity, but so much of this journey in Christ is unlearning assumptions that we had about ourselves, about our world, about what it is to be holy, about what it is to be righteous, of what it is to be loved. And so that was something for me, that revelation of holiness is a journey, it's not a destination, it's really a journey into seeing myself the way God sees me, like that wrecked me. Because then holiness becomes a byproduct of grace, as opposed to something that's in conflict with grace. And I think a lot of people view grace and holiness as two concepts that are in conflict, but they're actually one and the same. And it's just our small mindedness that requires us to parse them. Well, and I think it also comes back to what you said is it's it's a returning back to the scriptures, right? It's it's going back and reading the words of Jesus on our own, maybe not being filtered through however many filters out there in the world or what we hear that we're encountering Jesus and his word and his Holy Spirit. And when we encounter him in that way, we will understand that holiness and grace are not separated from each other and that we are saints and we are on mission and we can find and tap into that power that is Christ. But again, I think it all comes back to returning to and believing the word of God, the power of God's word, and owning it for ourselves, right? And not just making it personal. Right. It's ours. It's not somebody else (laughs) telling me on Sunday morning because that's just not going to work. Yeah, so so good. So much great stuff here. Thank you so much for sharing. What is your hope when somebody grabs this book, they read through it, and they put it down at the end of the day? What are you hoping they walk away with? Yeah, well, I I start the book with a chapter on the good life. And I've noticed that it seems like everyone is chasing the good life, like some idea of the good life, some magical elixir of sex stuff and status outside the church, inside the church. Like we're looking for that thing. And I poke a lot of fun um, at that concept in the first chapter. But the reality is, as I mentioned earlier, like we were made for more. So we're constantly chasing and craving something other than what we've known because that otherness was written on our hearts. Like there's an expansiveness inside of us that will not be denied. But for so many of us, we're channeling that in the wrong direction. And so I set, I set the book up with this idea that the good life isn't something you find, isn't something you achieve. It's not a single moment in time. The good life is someone you become. And this idea of the good life is actually synonymous with this journey of discovering what it is to be a saint. And I end the book with this statement. I say, you are a saint. Now become one. And right there, we have the great tension of being and becoming. Like we live in that tension. Like God speaks things over us prophetically, our current, where we are right now, but also reach into our future. And you see this, like some people, like they, they just talk about being and other people, they just talk about becoming. But we have to bring both of those concepts front and center if we're going to discover what life is all about. It's about being his, it's about being known, but it's also about becoming more than what we've seen because we're leaning into his faith, hope and love and seeing what that means for our world. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's so great. All right, well, we love to wrap up every single episode with three questions, and they go a little like this. What's a book that's impacted your life and journey? What's a habit that's impacted your life? And what advice would you give to the younger you? So, book. Gosh. I mean, I've read a lot of books, and I, so that's a really hard question to pick one. <laughs> uh, man. Uh, I'll go with After You Believe by N.T. Wright. What, what was special about it for you? Uh, what changed in you after reading it? So I think people have this idea of like, I get saved and then basically I spend the rest of my life hanging on to that first experience, that first love. It's one of those books is like, hey, what you do and how you live after you're saved has a lot of significance because salvation is bigger than just 
your salvation. You're actually being brought into a cosmic vision and plan of restoration. And that has definitely infected the way that I view everything about my life because it's so it's so much bigger than me. So that's that's the book. That's so great. That is great. Actually, the first time we've had that one. Yeah, that's yeah. a new one. That's good. Yep, good job. And uh, <laughs> habit. What's a habit that's changed your life? So I started this when, let's see, I was probably 23, where I would read the Bible, and then I would write in the margin right next to it. So I'd read a verse, write the margin, read a verse, write the margin, read a verse, write the margin. And it created this love for Scripture in me. It completely changed my life. So that, when I look back over the habits that I developed, I'm a one on the Enneagram, so I have a lot of habits. Uh, that's one that has radically changed my life because it created this insatiable hunger for the Word of God. And it's led me to ask very hard questions and to discover truths and ideas that, uh, that you only find when you not only read the Word, but also understand the greater narrative of Scripture. And then you get to see the tension within the greater narrative, and then you realize the the beauty and, and the providence of God. I mean, it's just, it's unlike anything else. So anything that can get you into God's word, that's a good habit. That's awesome. All right. And lastly, what advice would you give to the younger you? You're not that old, so it's got to be like... But you have had yeah. cataract surgery four times. <laughs> I have had, listen, I've had cataract surgery and I've had four kids. So, so yes, um, you, you, you're mature. You've lived some life, bro. <laughs> yeah. So going back to what I shared earlier about being present, I mean, that's it. Like, hey, listen, be present. Like, when, when you're not present, you're going to forget seasons mm-hmm. because you're going to spend all your time thinking about the next season. Mm-hmm. You don't want that. I would tell us, like, be present. Be there. See what God's doing in that season. Trust God with your tomorrow. Like, you can't control your tomorrow. You can't manipulate your way into and maneuver your way into tomorrow. Like, truly give Him the future. And I do think that desire to want to live in the past, present, and future, honestly, is, is idolatry. Like God's the only one who gets to live in the past, present, and future. We get to live in the present. And anytime we find ourselves giving, like being given over to idolatry, our world starts to fall apart. So my advice to my younger self would be be present and trust God. So Love it. Love it. So, so good. It's going to be such a great book, and it's going to impact so many people's lives. Where can they find you, follow you, look up the book, all that good stuff? Yeah, book's going to be available wherever books are sold. And um, they can connect with me through addisonbevere.com. I'm on Instagram. That's pretty much the only social media I do. And even then, I, I do that without much passion. But I am on this song. <laughs> good for you. Hey, man. Selfie for the right soul. Right there with you, bro. So, well, hey, thank man, you so much for rough. being here today, man. Thanks for sharing your story. Praying for yeah. you, your wife, your four kids, and this book. It's going to impact a lot of people. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Chris and Jenny. It's great being here. What a great conversation. Uh, can't wait to follow his journey and see how this message impacts so many people. Guys, thank you each and every single week for showing up here. Your faithfulness truly is amazing, and we're so honored to get to take this journey with you every single week. As always, we would love to hear from you and how these episodes are impacting and influencing your life. You can hit us up at our website or leave us a review on iTunes, and of course, you can find us on social media. And you can find all the info for today's episode in our show notes over at our website, letsliveitwell.com. All right, well, that's a wrap for this episode. Let's close it out like we do every single time, guys. Remember, you only get one life. Live Live it well. well.